Egypt, Israelites are in Egypt. God takes them out. They go to the land of Canaan. They're told to worship the Lord their God and him only, but they don't. They start worshiping the local gods, the idols. They do terrible things. For about 300 years, the prophets are saying, don't do this, there will be consequences. Dire consequences. Um, and what happens 300 years later is there are three major deportations of Israel, starting in 606 BC. This is the history lesson. I didn't know this all the, the dates off, okay? Um, so big bad Babylon comes in. Two Kings 24 tells us 3,023 well-trained, rich, noble, um, People are carried away from Israel to Babylon to serve there. Uh, we know one of them, his name was Daniel. So Israel were supposed to behave properly, pay their taxes, send their tributes to Babylon, behave respectfully to their new overlords, but they didn't do that. So approximately 10 years later, the armies of Babylon come back again to teach them a proper lesson and tens of thousands of the population are carried to Babylon, into exile. <coughs> Captives. Ten years later, they still hadn't learned their lesson. What happens next? 586 BC, hope you're enjoying the history, Babylonians came in and leveled the city. They stole the temple goods, and they took everybody. Unless you'd run away to the hills or you were disabled, that was it, you were gone. 700 miles away, gone. Um, so Jeremiah, which we're gonna to get to in a second, he was a priest and a prophet, and he's instructed by God to write a letter to the exiles, to the people in Babylon. So he's writing this around the time of the second deportation, just after that. So tens of thousands had gone. He's still in Jerusalem, and he, he writes. Um, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel at this stage, so he's in the first deportation. Let's guess he's roughly 15. His age is roughly 15. Um, 68 odd years later, he's writing in Daniel chapter 9, I was reading Jeremiah, he writes. So we're going to go back to the bit in Jeremiah that he was reading. This is Jeremiah 29 verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Daniel reads this and goes, that's soon. That's really soon. What can I do? But he must be roughly 85 years old. He's in a pretty horrific deportation and exile. We know some of the stories, don't we? Um, and this is his attitude. So he starts to think, right, God, you're, you're coming back for us. 
Let's, let's just pray. That's the history lesson. Let's pray as we go to, go to the word. Father God, Lord, we want to know you better and we're hungry to know you better. I ask you, Lord, to please help us understand who you are and what you are doing in our circumstances. If, like Daniel, it's not what we planned for our life or what we expected or we're on booster jabs or second waves or third waves or working from home or many other unpleasant things this year. Lord, I pray that you would teach us this evening how to, um, how to understand you a little bit better and what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this evening's reading, Jeremiah 31, chapter 7, reading down as far as verse 14. This is, this is the good part, after they return. This is, this, is, this is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the, from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tom mentioned epiphany. Here's an epiphany that I had preparing this. God is a thinker. God is thinking. God is a thinker. But you didn't expect that this evening. We are in God's thoughts. That's my first, first point. Jeremiah 29. So we read the bit, didn't we, that said when 70 years are completed. The next verse after that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but looking into this, one of the ways to translate plans there is thoughts. And it's in the present continuous tense. I'll change it slightly here. For I know the thoughts that I think and am thinking about you, declares the Lord. Thoughts about prospering you and not harming you. Thoughts about giving you hope and a future. 
God is a thinker or a planner, if you prefer that. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from the place which I carried you into exile, from which I carried you. Um, God's taking the blame here. I carried you into exile. I sent you. I scattered you. But I will bring you back. Um, Psalm 139. David writes, I think he had a similar epiphany. How precious are your thoughts? How vast the sum of them? God is a thinker and he's thinking about us. How precious are those thoughts? How vast the sum of them, David says. Isaiah writes, He has inscribed your name on the palms of his hands or marked in his heart. Gives us a bit of an understanding, doesn't it, about what, what God is like. The exiles may have felt abandoned. Some of us may have felt sad or abandoned at some stage in our life or maybe this past year. But in this case with the exile, God hadn't left them. They'd left God. He stayed with them and he stayed involved. He says he knows the number of hairs on our head. Even while he's overseeing the rise and fall of nations, Babylon, come over here, do this. He says he was part of that. So the first point, God's a thinker and he's thinking about us. Our second point is we don't always understand. And you can imagine the exile was horrific. First, second, and third deportations. But I don't think we're always supposed to understand. God knows his thoughts perfectly. But we panic when we don't know what's going on. And sometimes we look at it in a great way, trusting God, and sometimes we feel like this is, where is he? But we don't always have to understand. Isaiah says, Isaiah 55, my thoughts, again, are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is a thinker, thinking thoughts. We don't always understand them. David says again, and he obviously knew that he didn't understand them, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And Paul, on a similar theme in Romans, says, Oh, the depths of riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond or past finding out. Too lofty to attain, beyond finding out. And Job, in pretty bleak circumstances, said this, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he takes something away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? 
in the circumstances, there doesn't have to be understanding. But our response to God, if it's like Job or even like Daniel, their heart is close to God. They haven't moved away from him. My third point is God is good. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's good. If he wasn't good, we couldn't do anything about it anyway, but he is good. Exodus 34 says, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is God introducing himself. I'm rich in love, I'm slow to anger. Deuteronomy 31, I will never leave you or forsake you, I am good. Hebrews 11, I promise to reward openly those who seek me because I'm good. 1 Samuel, those who honor me, I will honor. And Philippians, I'll finish the work that I've started in you. We have a God who's thinking, but a God that we don't always need to understand. But he is good. Good. Everything he does is motivated by love. So what do we do when circumstances go against us as they will? Well, let's think about Daniel for a second. Things didn't go too well for him. Quick summary here of Sunday school. He was exiled, probably separated from family, uh, 700 miles away. He was made to eat food sacrificed from idols, and he wasn't happy with that, being a, being a Jew. Um, he was prevented, wasn't he, from praying to God and he was actually forced by law to bow down and worship a man, a king. What did Daniel do? He stayed close to God in the circumstances. So if everything that God does is, is motivated by love because he's good and we don't necessarily understand, um, how we approach this is, is important for us because it has a big effect, doesn't it, on, on the way that we perceive what we're going through. Um, so God's desire is for us to be close with him. So we should be close to him. We should be intimate with him. Why did he send punishment on Israel? To cause them to return to him. That was the point. Why does he allow difficult circumstances for any of us? Possibly so that we turn to him. He wants us close, we know that. We're not told that if we give our lives to Jesus, there will not be COVID or there won't be sickness or um, bad circumstances. Think, think of Daniel. Um, David says, doesn't he? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he doesn't say, there will be no evil. He says, I will fear no evil. He's got God with him in the circumstances. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Why would anyone need comfort? Because bad stuff is present. You prepare a table before me, away from my enemies or in the presence of my enemies. David says, in the presence of my enemies. So, we should not worry 
That's easy to say, isn't it? It's hard to do. We shouldn't worry about circumstances. We should try not to focus on the circumstances. David wrote, despite his hardships, didn't he? And we can see from Daniel as well. I love the end of Psalm 23. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David wrote this before everything was sorted out, while things were still difficult. I think for me, starting 2022, if I can focus on my God, who is rich in love and slow to anger, who is thinking about me, and I do not have to understand, and I can say, as David did, that your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But that would be a really good way to start this year, and a really good year.